For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at Hey everyone, on this episode of Six Degrees with Mike McKenna, I'm joined by the pride of Fort Francis, Ontario, and my old Peoria Riverman coach, Dave Allison. He spent 40 plus years in the game, and he's the first guest to quote Henry David Thoreau, not once, but twice. Enjoy. on Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. And Dave, the first thing I've got to ask you, how on earth did a young man from Fort Francis, Ontario end up playing for the Cornwall Royals at the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League? Geez, Mike, if you could find that out, I'd appreciate it because what I heard that I was drafted by Cornwall, the only Cornwall I knew was from catcher in the rye for crying out loud. I never even knew there was a Cornwall, Ontario. But at that time, it was, well, it still is, in the province of Ontario, but they played in the Quebec League. So they drafted in the Ontario League, but played in the Quebec League. And Orville Tessier was the coach. And uh, honestly, like I, I had no idea what I was getting into. And it was one of the first times I took a flight, got into Ottawa, met Bobby Crawford. He had a hockey bag. I had a hockey bag. And... Uh, I figured he was going to Rockland for training camp. And so we struck up a friendship and we got there and Orville Tessier knew Bobby Crawford. It was like the coming of Elvis when he got off the bus and I was just sort of like a spare dick at a wedding. And uh, he just, he, Bobby Crawford finally said, geez, aren't we going to take, uh, take Dave Allison too? And he said, oh yeah, we got to get him in the bus too. And we, uh, we went to training camp and, after two days, I got in two fights, and they knew my name. And that's what got you in the door. You mentioned Orville Tessier really quick. Do you have any fond memories of him? Well, you know, we were just opening the brand-new arena there in Cornwall. And we played 10 straight games on the road. And we had a good team. Danny Jeffreyon, Ricky Patterson, uh, Timmy Bernhardt, Dave Ezard. And he said every win that we got, was a hundred bucks made about a thousand dollars and we ended up going 10 and oh my and we come back and we thought we had ten thousand dollars or a thousand dollars even for a party and the next thing you know we lost one game and orville fined us either the ten thousand or one thousand so we were back to even Cancelled it after one yeah. loss you guys went 10 and oh and he yeah, canceled yeah. after one loss well he wasn't giving us that money he said, if we lose this game, you guys are going to lose all that money. And we ended up losing the game. But it was a good city. It was a great city. I had some of the nicest billets, Mr. and Mrs. Hahn. And, uh, you know, met some wonderful people. Dave Ezard, like I said, Timmy Bernhardt has been a real booster and a real help in my career. And uh, just good hockey people. Same with Ricky Patterson. But three years there. And then I... Uh, I signed as a free agent. That was the first year that uh, you could go underage. And the WHA was folding. And uh, there was uh, six rounds. And I never got drafted. And I just figured, man, this is the best team in the National Hockey League because I think they just won five Stanley Cups. And I figured, hey, you know what? If you want to 
play in the best league. You might as well go to one of the best teams. And uh, what an organization, Mike. I mean, just the class from the uh, Jean Beliveau, uh, Maurice Richard, just the class. Doug Armstrong's dad was a scout there, and Claude Ruel. And uh, when I went there, Boom Boom Jeffreyon had taken over. And uh, it was a tough gig for him because it was like you're going to, you know, history class or gym class. And, and uh, you know, you were really under the thumb. And then in your next course was music or something like that. And you just took advantage of it. And, you know, they were so used to Scotty's um, iron fist that whoever was going to go in there it was going to be a difficult act to follow. And I thought that he did a real nice job. But... Uh, you know, they were in a state of, of flux as, as Sammy Pollock had retired, and, uh, but it was still some of the greatest human beings you'll ever meet. Serge Savard, Larry Robinson, Dougie Risebrow. I mean, it was a hall of fame of, of, of human beings. Bob Gainey, uh, just unbelievable people. You touched on it really briefly, how you got into two fights during your first camp in the Quebec League with Cornwall. Dave, you put up a lot of penalty minutes when you played. You had points, too. You did a nice job there. But was fighting something that got you in the door? And what was your feelings on it when you started playing? Because to now, nowadays, there's such a different aspect of what it does in the game. Back then, it was way different. So what were your thoughts on that, getting your foot in the door with it, and then its place in the game? Well, you know, I just think it was a place in life at that point in time, and you know, when somebody took a liberty with one of your one of your teammates, you you answered the bell. And at that time, um, it was dropping the gloves, and it was never it was never really fun. I mean, uh, my first year pro, uh, we had Chrissy Nyland come in, and he was drafted out of Northwestern University, and he was signed to a five game tryout, a, a fifteen game tryout, twenty five game tryout, forty game tryout, but. We had 14 bench-clearing brawls that year. Come on. Four, I'm not kidding you. 14. We played Moncton Hawks six straight games in exhibition in six different maritime towns. <laughs> and it was bedlam. And I mean, it got to the point that it was just, you would wake up in cold sweat for your pregame nap and in fact one time i think it was about the 12th they were mostly initiated by chrissy dialer because he loved to fight he was and that guy who was just wasn't it, fearful think, of it at all right like there's those cer certain guys he, that just seem to love it and they always made me nervous oh he was he he was as tough and as loyal a human being as you could meet. And he's, he's, we're, we're sitting there once in Portland, Maine, and he says, we're clearing the benches. And I said, why? He says, Berkey's in trouble. Debbie Burke, who's the director of Scotty with San Jose. I said, Chris, he's not even dressed. He said, we're still going. And away we went. And you know what, Mike? 40 games into the season, I think he had 468 minutes in penalties. He was called up to Montreal and played in Boston, where he's from. He fought Jonathan O'Reilly and Wensink, I think, and never saw the minors again, and turned himself into a heck of a hockey player. And I think you know the rest of the story from the last gladiator or something, but he's really turned his life around. He's back in Montreal, and uh, he's got a podcast as well. And uh, just, it, but it was a different time. It was a different time, and I don't envy anybody or don't even want to go back to those days. So it wasn't something that you really enjoyed. It just felt like that that was part of the job, and you didn't even take your own you know, livelihood and, and your health into account with these type of things, right? When you got on the ice, it's just what you did and what you were doing to try to win the game, right? That's what it was, and just, just to be a friend, I mean – I moved back when my dad uh, got sick with Alzheimer and we had a bench clearing brawl with the SIJHL. Um, and my daughter was just appalled because the, the, the police woman had come in there and it was the night after and she was bad mouthing, you know, the, the, the behavior. And like, we didn't start it. The guy threw a stick at one of our players and then he came across and came across the ice and we had a full scale bench clearing brawl. And I just said to Avery, our oldest, 
Dave, if somebody goes after one of your sisters, what are you going to do? And uh, she said, well, I'd step in. I said, well, babe, that's what we did. And, and really, Mike, that's what it was. You know, there was some skilled players or there was just some good people that, that you played with. And whether you liked them or not, the bottom line was you stuck together. And in that day and age, it was just do it. Now, some other people did different things, like to score goals takes courage. You know, to go to the front of the net and take the hacks and wax and everything else. And I think anybody that gets the pro um, and laughs in pro, they find their niche and they do what they've got to do um, to be relevant within the game. Those time in Nova Scotia, you spent the better part of, I think, what, five, six years there? And you touched on how there's so much camaraderie and the sense of being somebody's teammate and their friend and the loyalty aspect to all that, which just inherently makes me think, go back to our time in Peoria together, when within the first two weeks that we were there, you rounded up all the troops and you said, boys, we're going to lunch. And we did. We went to the Tilted Kilt. All the boys came. All the girlfriends came. You know, we had a couple drinks together. We got to know one another. How important was that to the camaraderie and the chemistry in the locker room? I just think that a coach's job is to galvanize his team. You know, he's got to give them direction. He's got to give them hope. He's got to give them confidence. But as much as anything, it's to galvanize your team. That in order for them to have success, we all have to have success. And you've got to enjoy each other. You know, I know there's competition. Um, there's competition, but there has to be positive competition. You have to be excited for somebody else's uh, success. I mean, you can't sit in the bench and hope that your teammates have a lousy shift or, you know, make a mistake. You've, you, you've got to have that positive competition and just that positive attitude that, that, that you can find it because it's just more fun. I think if you keep sitting there and hoping people fail, uh, sooner or later, you're going to fail a lot more than they do. Best teams I were, I was always on were the closest and the teams that had so much fun together. And yeah. I'm sure that you experienced that. And I'm looking back at the old American League with you in Nova Scotia, and it really was a lot of teams that were in the Maritimes. Was it a fun league to play in then with all the travel that you had and the times that you spent out on the road seeing different things, different cities? It was the most fun I think I've ever had. I mean, people call it the minors. I don't look at it the minors. I think that you take care of where your boots are. It's the most important place you are at that moment in your life. You take care of it. And like Thoreau said, when a man strides confidently in the direction of his dreams, he shall meet with success in unexpected hours. And I think that we all met with such success um, during those times and the Maritimes, I mean, the Maritimes is one of the most beautiful places, I think, in the world. Nova Scotia, uh, Prince Edward Island, Cape Breton, and just going on the bus and watching some movies and, and, and just sitting there talking and playing cards or playing chess or, or just doing those things. That was, that's what it was all about. And I think in this day and age, when people talk about it's such a communicative age, it's not. We've lost the communication between two people. We've lost the communication between our children and ourselves because everybody's working. You don't sit down for dinner. Um, you're texting, you're whatever. And it's a lost art. And it's, it's something that they are missing, I think. During your time there, you also had a legendary coach named John Brophy. And you talk about communication skills. There's a guy who had plenty of them in very unique ways, according to people that have played for him. Do you have any you know, fun memories or stories of John Brophy coaching that team in Nova Scotia? Oh, man. There was always, there was always something going on with Brophy. I mean, he, you know, there was no video. There was, uh, there was just... It was just get the job done. He didn't know. He didn't care how. He didn't care however you got it done. But 
he was a compassionate guy as well. I mean, I'll tell you one story because so many of them are X-rated. Um, but Those we were the playing ones. in Rochester. <laughs> I go, but we were playing in Rochester, and my dad came down because my brother at the time was with the Leafs, and so it worked out perfect. My dad saw a couple games, watched my brother Mike play with Toronto, and then he drove down and saw us play um, Rochester Americans. And after the game. We were going to drive back to Toronto and stay with my brother over Christmas and then fly back to Halifax. So we were up to 6-1. We were up 6-1 and 6-2 going into the third. And we ended up losing 7-6. to And Brof came into the dressing room after the third period, after the overtime, absolutely livid. And he looked at a guy that had turned the puck over three times and said, Mars, if you get a hard on when you turn the puck and they shear or go up to his head off and score, you must have had five to six that period. <laughs> and he canceled Christmas. No. He canceled Christmas, Mike. Come on. He said, nobody's going home for Christmas. I was the captain, and he absolutely canceled Christmas. Oh, uh, did you try and to fight him on it? The... I mean, did you try to, like, get the boys at oh. Christmas break, like, go to bat for him and try to make it happen? We had to. Like, yeah. my dad is in the bus. My dad is in the bus. And I never said anything. I never said anything until we get on the bus, and everybody is just up in arms. And I said, bro, you can't cancel Christmas. He said, you don't think I can cancel Christmas? And all of a sudden, he starts going again. And I said, bro, you can't cancel Christmas. Everybody's going home. And Greg Jolly stepped in as well. And he was a young kid that, you know, and, and he stepped in. And then finally said, bro, said, okay, Christmas is back on. But it ain't going to be no, it, it, I don't care what he said after that but we were so relieved that we just got the heck out of there and we all met up after christmas and had a good laugh about it <laughs> but he's the only guy that's ever canceled christmas <laughs> he's the ultimate grinch uh, you spent four years full seasons in nova scotia and then most of another before you finally got your chance to play in the nhl and when you finally did for the montreal canadians it may have been three games but what was the feeling like and what are the memories for you stepping onto the ice in the national hockey league well you know my goal honestly mike my goal was never to play in the national hockey league. my goal was to do the best i could and if it worked out I was going to be fortunate, but, um, and maybe that's the wrong way to look at it, but I just thought you did the best you could every day. I got called up and I remember it. We practiced on a Saturday and we didn't play a lot of Saturdays in Halifax at the time. And there was, it's, it's a great, it's a, you know, after practice, usually go for, uh, we'd, uh, go for a bite to eat, um, downtown because Halifax is just a wonderful city. And uh, we had no cell phones, and I got home. There was a message, and they said, hey, we want you to come up and play against Boston tonight at the Montreal Forum. And I went up there, and uh, I dressed and got in a fight with Davy Silk. And the next day, we were going into New York to play the Rangers on a Sunday. And again, no cell phones. I didn't even know my brother's phone number for crying out loud. We get to Madison Square Gardens because there's no pregame skate. We got in there late and uh, get to the rink. And my brother's there. He goes up, covered it, and he's all excited. I say, Mike, you playing? He says, no, I'm hurt, and the playoffs are just around the corner. And uh, I say, well, you got to take the warm-up. And he says, well, I don't have any equipment. I said, Mike, you got to take the warm-up because we got to get our picture taken. Like, seals across. <laughs> we may never pass this way again. So my brother took Brad, Bubba Beck's equipment, his spare set of equipment, and dressed for the warm-up, and it's the most valued memento I have of my career. It's my brother in the white New York Ranger jersey and me in the red. And I'm looking at it right now, Mike. 
it's 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 up on the wall at the cabin that I'm at, and uh, we got our picture taken, and then uh, you know the rest is history. The next the next day we had off, and Tuesday we were going into New York Islanders to play them, and Bob Barry comes up to me and he says uh, he says uh, you know Dave you know nice job he says uh, but we're gonna put these two college kids in. You know, they just finished their college years and uh, we're going to put them in. But you know what? You'll probably be back in and uh, we just want to have a look at them. Well, the problem with those two college kids is one, one guy's name was Craig Ludwig and the other guy was Chris Chelios. And I never <laughs> saw another shift in the Are you cordial when you see those guys now? Because they ended up playing, what, 25, 3,000 games in the NHL and that's essentially who wrote your ticket oh. out of town? <laughs> Well, you know what? They were just good players. They're yeah. better than me. I mean, Craig Ludwig was a wonderful guy, and Chris Chelios is, is his son. Played for us in Chicago, and I told him. And, and, and in fact, I'm in. I think somebody told me I was mentioned in his book or whatever because of, he he remembered the story as well. But man, you again, you're talking about such wonderful human beings with the Montreal Canadiens, and both those guys. I mean, I worked with Craig Ludwig. His son played for us. When I uh, when I moved to Iowa as well, he had two boys and they were both good players. Um, they played for us, and 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 Chris's son played for us in Chicago as well. So it was pretty cool. Isn't that hockey dynamic amazing? Because you just told that story about you and your brother meeting at center ice, dressing for warmups together, getting that picture. When we were in Peoria, you would tell stories though about you and your brother all the time, the crazy stuff you got into, all the trouble, and you weren't separated by a lot of years, right? So. Growing up, do you think it was a big benefit to have somebody that close to you in age playing the game that you could kind of play off one another as you're learning and moving up through the ranks? I think, Mike, when you come from a small town, um, you know, you don't know what you don't know. I mean, my brother played in Kenora with Timmy Coolis and, and, and a couple other great guys at, at, at 60, 15 years old. And he was the first overall pick of the OHL draft, and he didn't find out. Um, until reading the Globe and Mail on the Sunday. And it was just nonchalant with him. And he went to Sudbury, and then he was drafted by by uh, the New York Rangers. And Fred Shearer was the coach at uh, at that time. And he played as an underage. And there was the, the first-round pick, the guy's name was Malone. And they were offering Michael less money to sign than Malone. And Michael said, no, I made the team. He didn't. But I want the same amount of money. And my dad and Billy Waters and so many, the agents were saying, Mike, Mike, you've got to, you know, you've got to sign. And, you know, it's a chance to sign the National Hockey League. He says, no, it's just a principle of things. And my brother was way more mature than I was. Um, <laughs> what do you but, mean by that? <laughs> you know, well, he learned a lot from my mistakes. Uh. And he was better served. Because he saw the, he was able to see the potholes before he hit the potholes, and he's he's an excellent. He was an excellent player, but Mike, it took him a long time after to to find himself, and I think that that happens with a lot of other hockey players. I mean, it's it's a it's a life of adulation. And then you've got to find yourself and reinvent yourself. And, uh, you know, he's just a wonderful brother. But there was a time there that we really were estranged from each other, and I couldn't figure it out. But I think uh, um, it, it, it all worked itself out. But he he had an excellent career. You know, played in or played in uh, the Rangers with, with Freddie Shiro. And Ray Shiro has been a huge benefit to my career, um, both on and off the ice. So, you know, we had that assimilation with, with, you know, Freddie and Ray and Michael and I, and, and then he went on to Toronto and played for Brof in Toronto. And he said to me, bad of that. I don't know why Brof traded for me. He thought I was going to be like you. He says, I'm not close to you. He says, I just want to play. <laughs> and then he went out in LA. And in fact, Mike, a funny story when uh, Michael was already in LA and, you know, uh, Dave Taylor was there and, uh, uh, they traded for Gretzky and my brother's quote in the paper. Well, it's about time. They finally got somebody that can play with me, <laughs> but, but, uh, 
<laughs> I'm jumping around here, but it's uh, it, it it is amazing. It's it's who you meet along the way, and 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 how it all ties in, and and how fortunate we all have been. You played a lot of games in the playoffs during your career. Did you ever get close or win a championship? I couldn't find that. No, we won. Uh, we won the Turner Cup with Ricky Lee and Larry Gordon. Was that in Muskegon? Uh, in Muskegon? Yeah. What a yep. feeling that's got to be to actually was, take a championship, huh? You know, it was. It really was. But you know, when when I look back, one of the one of the best games in my life was we played summer hockey, and my brother and I were the only two guys that were still playing. And you know, we beat International Falls, and they had Olympians on there: Neil Sheehy and Gary Sampson, and. And, uh, you know, the whole two towns were out. The place was packed. And uh, it was just that hardwired camaraderie you had with your friends. But to win a championship, to win any championship at any level, is exciting. When your career started to wind down, playing in the American League, the International Hockey League, you know, you won that championship with Muskegon and kept playing. How did your transition out of the game into coaching come about? Because you went directly into it. You were a player assistant before you ended up taking a job as a head coach in the ECHL. Did you always envision yourself going into coaching after you played? I did, Mike. I went to coaching seminars when I was still playing. In fact, Cal Botterill, I still remember the talk. And I worked with Jason Botterill, who's a GM of Buffalo. Um, you know, in fact, I've still got uh, the, the, the talk that he had, um, you know, typed out. You got all those things and Dave King and, and uh, you know, George Kingston uh, coaching seminars because both my parents were teachers. And I love the biographies of whether it be Patton or, or anybody that found success. And I always loved again, the galvanization of people that together they can be better. And I really love the sport, but I just loved helping people help themselves and bridging and gapping what their perception was to what the reality was and then having them find success or at least understanding that this is what they had to do. I mean, I remember um, speaking with a, a guy who's still in the National Hockey League and done very well when we were in Iowa. And I said to him, you know, James, what would you do to play in the National Hockey League? And he says, I'd do anything. I'd say, well, you're going to have to kill Brendan Morrill and Bot because they're ahead of you. And he said, well, I wouldn't do that. And I said, well, that's it. You've got to find out how far you will go without going to jail. Play. But these are the three things that I think that you should concentrate on. And away he went. Now, I also had another guy who we played with. And uh, I said, you know, sort of reference the same thing and he says oh i killed him i said well we've got a big problem we've got a big problem i'm that's, gonna be a, a burner for crying out loud yeah that's that's psychopath sociopath tendencies we don't want to have that on our hands <laughs> no no but that the coaching the coaching has i love it. It, it it gets you excited and you meet people like you mike i mean i still remember you know jake allen got called up to the big club and uh we were in Peoria, and you won three straight games in three in, 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 in three consecutive cities, three consecutive nights, three wins for Mike McKenna. Came in there on the Tuesday and said, "Mike, I got good news and bad news." And he looked at me and he said, "What's the good news? You got Player of the Week. What's the bad news? <laughs> Ryan Elliott's coming down, and you won't dress this. You won't play this weekend." <laughs> and most people would be so ticked off and I remember you just looking up and saying not even saying but I could see in your eyes this is this is part of what I signed up for and it wasn't fair but it needed to be done for the benefit of the organization 
and you understood that. And Ellie came down, he won the two games, and you went back in, and because you are the person that you are, and that emotional balance, you went back in the net, and did not be, you weren't resentful, you weren't jealous, you weren't anything, you just kept going along, and winning games, and doing the best you could. That's what your job is, you know? I mean, what can you do? If they make a decision that you're not going to play, that's out of my hands. So I always took it like that, that when I get in the net, I'm going to do the best I can. It's all it came down to. You, you know, you you have such a great feel for the personalities of the guys that you've had in the locker room, I feel like. And for whatever reason, being able to connect with guys. When I told people that I was going to be interviewing you, I mean, there was just an onslaught of stories, whether it was from the lamb sandwiches you made us in the room in Peoria to going out and talking about the movie you saw the night before that you'd seen twice, or even bringing a screwdriver and always having it in your car because you never know when you're going to need it to be able to fix it. You know, these are the things that imparting wisdom on the younger generation. Have you always felt like you had that ability to connect like that? Well, I don't really know. It's I just like people. I like, I like, I think that there's a lot of anxiety in these kids and, 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 and a lot of, and a lot of, uh, a lot of undue pressure on people, especially now. And I think that, you know, anxiety is two things. It's looking at the situation and saying it's catastrophic. And the second thing is, is looking at the situation saying you have no control over it. And I think that when you can sit down with somebody and pull back the layers and find out what is bothering them, you're not coaching them about hockey because really Mike it's not brain surgery bad it just isn't don't turn the puck over work hard work smart play together I mean, you Put know, a couple it, cross it, checks it, on the guy in the corner don't let him come near the net that's right stop the puck yeah stop the puck hey I, I gotta ask you really quick here how did you start taking imaginary shots at goalies to warm them up because that was one of the things that we had as a little routine you'd stand out there at the hash marks and there were no pucks but I'd warm up by where you were shooting the puck to in an imaginary sense. How did that start? I, I, I think you track it with your eyes. And I think if you can tell that you're like how the person's shooting, that you know where the puck is. And I think that, you know what, Mike, you would, you would, uh, Jake could track that puck. And I'd say 99% of the time you knew where I was shooting. And so <laughs> to me, it just, it just forced you to track the puck and have some fun at the same time. Yeah. And I mean, I didn't score too many on you with uh, no puck. But now when I keep down, you put a couple of that geeks on, I was worried about your groins. Well, I mean, it's because you used a 13-foot-long stick, Dave. I know. I know. Nobody could get near me. <laughs> you definitely took pride, though, in joining in some of the some of the rushes and the defensive drills out there, though. I mean, I, was it a point to, to show the guys that you could still do it and you knew what you were talking about? Well... I think too that so many people now watch the puck, and you know, playing three on three, like there's less communication out there, and it's more hockey school sort of mentality sometimes with these guys. But if you go out there and you communicate, and you know, you look at the person's eyes, he's going to tell you where he's going with the puck or what he's going to do the majority of the time. And I mean, I, I can't play anymore, but I, I, I'm a lot smarter now about how the game's played, even to, at least I think I am, um, than I was when I played. And I, I, I think it was just fun going out there. And I could still remember Kelly Fairchild. If he taped the tape, but he did know his colors because I was on the other team. And he, I think he's still pissed off to this day and age. <laughs> Do you remember the day, the day we were practicing in Austin after rookie party? <laughs> and, the, oh. and some of the guys couldn't do anything and you ended up kicking David Shields off the ice. <laughs> oh, my goodness me. It was I actually mean, was more like it was a mercy play. You just casually let him off. <laughs> oh, well. You know, it was something. Um, and again, I think that those are the necessary 
necessary things that uh, the guys look back at. I mean, Fordo was a great captain. And, uh, you know, we had some good guys at that team, Cracks and, uh, uh, you know, Porter and all those guys. But, man, I knew it was going to be a tough one. We had to grind it out. But David Shields, I mean, it was a mercy killing for crying out loud. <laughs> I just never forget it. The guy skating down to my end. And Davey just skated up to him and said, I think you've had enough, son. Go ahead and get off. <laughs> well, you know what, too, Mike? You can't hold it against him like you didn't do it yourself. Oh. But you just got to push through and you got to yeah. come to play. But that's rookie party, right? And that's why you plan it out yeah. so you have a couple of days off so you can do it at a time where if things get sideways in practice the next day, you can kind of accept it and knowing that you're going to have another day to get ready before a game, you know? I'm sure you've yeah. got great memories of rookie parties that you went through and you played too. Yeah, that's. I think that that's the empathy that you need. You need the empathy and then when you see David Shields, you have to have the compassion to, hey, get off. <laughs> Well, we got to work with the guy named Scott Allen when we were there. And Scotty, I've had in four cities at this point in my career. He's been integral into my success. And I don't think I've seen anybody work harder. And, and a, really a guy who's carved his niche as an assistant coach. He's doing a great job with the Arizona Coyotes now. How important is, is it for you as a head coach to have an assistant who not only one works well with you, but two works as hard as a guy like Scott did? Scotty Allen and the assistants that I've had have been unbelievable. Curtis Hunt is in the Memorial Cup as the GM with uh, Prince Albert, um, Davey Richter, Nate Wiesner, um, Paulie Gerard, uh, you know, Johnny Phelan. But Scotty Allen was in Omaha with Ryan McGill. And that was our biggest rival when I was with Iowa. I got to play for him there. I was one of the teams I dressed. I didn't actually play. Ryan McGill wouldn't toss me in the net at all because I was a PTO guy. But, man, I rode the bench really well behind Curtis McElhaney for a month and a half. Oh, Curtis McElhaney was a good goal turner too, Mike. Yeah. Um, but Scotty Allen was – I just saw him, you know, across the bench. And then when we go in there, because I knew Gilly a bit, and we'd have some conversations. But – Scotty Allen had a twinkle in his eye and a sincerity about him. And when I was fortunate enough to get the job with Doug Armstrong and the Dallas Stars, um, there was a lot of, of a lot of people that were interested in the job. But I kept going back to Scotty Allen. And I think two guys that I knew, I, their, their names escaped me, called me about him. And I called Scotty. And... Uh, it was like, hey, this is the guy, not that I want. This is the guy that I need. This is the guy that I need going back into the American Hockey League. And we had two years. We just had a marvelous time. The time in Peoria, he's got a wonderful family, two daughters. Um, and then we, then when we moved to Chicago and shared the franchise, we ended up living at the rink. He lived. Uh, I lived on the Lazy Boy for four months, and he lived on the trainer's table. So you actually and lived at the rink? <laughs> we lived at the rink. We Amazing. lived at the rink, man. We had no choice. for Well, we did have a choice, but it was just easier for us. And we just had a marvelous time. And uh, it does not surprise me one bit. And here's a guy that I think, Mike, for 10 years, he lived in 10 different cities, coaching 10 different teams, and just followed his path. And again, I go back to a man strides confidently in the direction of his dreams. And Scotty Allen is just, uh, is just a wonderful human being, to be quite honest. And uh, a lot of fun. Now. I mean, I remember, remember his brakes did work on his truck. And uh, <laughs> he'd, leave the, he'd leave the rake of Peoria. And he'd see, and he'd, and he'd challenge himself to get home. Without using the brakes. With, without <laughs> using the brakes. Because it was too cold for him to ride his Harley. He had to put it away for the winter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he's, in Arizona, he's just, he's done a great job. I mean, they had top penalty kill. And, and Scotty's just a people person. He just, and he was with the Islanders. And uh, um, he's done so well for himself. Well, he's and very humble. Yeah, he's the best of the yeah. best. He also wanted to make yeah. sure, though, that I asked you something about 
your time together with the Chicago Wolves staff. And he said that you guys had a get-together at your house in Des Moines. And he was wondering if you'd share a little bit of what may have happened there. Well, we were there, and uh, we had a wonderful meal. And we had a couple of cocktails, uh, Johnny, Jamie Ubriaco, and Scotty and myself. And we went out back, and we had the hot tub. And, um, you know, we were all just sitting around, and all of a sudden, we heard this clump, 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 coming down the stairs. And it was one of us, and I'm not going to say who, that had my dog in the headlock. It went to pet him at the top of the stairs and leaned over and then catapulted himself all the way down and smashed into the wall at the bottom. And my dog basically saved him from a concussion. And the next day, the person was so bruised up. And about three days later, his wife thought he was having an affair because he had bruises all over his body. But I'm not going to mention the person's name that's unbelievable that's you guys must have had a lot of fun though i had all sorts of texts and messages of guys showing like the christmas parties in chicago where i mean when you get on a microphone dave you're you're keen to show off your singing ability is that something you've always been able to do ah you know what i I, you got a beautiful voice you know i would have hey you gotta live man you know (laughs) I mean, if 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 you, if you like doing something and just, I mean, there's a difference between a fool and an idiot. I'm okay with being a fool sometimes, but I don't think I'm an idiot most of the time, you know, most of the time. And I mean, I think that people want to laugh and people, hey, we're all entertainers. I love singing. You know, if, if I got I got to say something. I won Quest for the Best, which was uh, you sang at the uh, in, in the Winter Festival here in Fort Grattan, singing Bob Seger, Turn the Page, Baby. Oh, wait. How old were you when that happened? Oh, man. I was 40 years old. Really? Just, uh, oh, yeah. They, they could believe it, you know. But, <laughs> hey, I would have sang the National Anthem of Peoria. <laughs> Oh, man. My favorite memories, though, were when you'd come in the room for a pregame speech or pregame story. And I'm really curious, though, how you go about thinking about what you're going to say before a game. Because, you know, sometimes as a coach, you come in, it's a very specific game plan. You go over things. But there'd be times, too, where you just come in carefree, tell a story. Or, I mean, even the one time you came in singing a Christmas carol to get us going. And I loved it. I had a huge smile on my face. It lightened up the room. How do you make those decisions before you go in on how you're going to approach preparing a team for a game? You know what? I remember the Christmas Carol was in Milwaukee and Ian Cole jumped right up there and we started singing the Christmas Carol together. Oh, come all ye faithful. Taylor Chorney joined right in. I'll never forget. Yeah. Yeah, He won. You walked, you walked right around the corner. Oh, come all ye faithful. And it didn't take but maybe a bar of that sign of that song before Colsey, Chorney, everybody jumped right in and we were in a big chorus. Oh, come all ye faithful. <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, that's what you have to have faith in the game at that point in time. You had to have faith in each other. And, you know, everything can find ways to relate. And it's an 80-game schedule. And, you know, you would think about it. Because I don't think that the game is the most important thing in your life. It's just not, Mike. You know that more than, you know that as well as I do. But for 60 minutes each day, it has to be the most important thing in your life. But it definitely is not the most important thing in the whole scheme of things. And I didn't want people to lose sight of, sight of that. And I wanted them to enjoy the experience. Like I played for guys that it was life or death. And, you know, you're almost afraid to lose. Um, but I wanted people to just enjoy coming to the rink. I think the days of, you know, you're coming into the rink and everybody say, oh, the coach is pissed off. The coach is pissed off. They're long gone. People want who's ever in charge to come in there and give them hope, give them direction, 
give them confidence and a new start each and every day. And, you know, I think as you go along, you learn not to hold grudges. You learn to let it go. And you learn that people will, you've got to find a way to connect with them. Um, and I mean, especially in the American League, that was your job. Uh, because there was a lot of good people that put their reputations on the line as scouts, as general managers, as player development. And you had to do everything you could to put this kid in a position of success. Now, there was some times where the guy became detrimental to the success of others, and then you'd have to talk to the general manager. But for the most part, you know, I've worked with fabulous guys. Doug Armstrong, Ray Shiro, Randy Sexton, Pierre Maguire. They're just, they're just perfect people because not everybody's going to make it. And it was just important for the, while they were there, that they, that they did have some good memories, I would hope. We have plenty of them. And you talked about Ray Shiro, Randy Sexton, Pierre Maguire. Two of those guys were from the time you spent with the Ottawa organization, being Randy Sexton and Pierre Maguire. And you did time with the Prince Edward Island Senators as their head coach. And then you ended up being promoted to the Ottawa Senators in 95-96. What were the impressions of that season? What do you specifically remember from first getting the call to being a head coach in the NHL and then being on a team that couldn't really seem to get out of them their own way, it seemed like, for the rest of the year. It must have been challenging to to try to get your foot in the door in that scenario. You know, Mike, again, I never set out. Um, I just set out to do the best I could. And the year before, we went, we had a, a, a great group of guys, Lance Pitlick, uh, Mikey Bales, Picard, Stevie LaRouche. Um, we just had a lot of good guys, and we had a very successful year. And then the next year... Um, you know, we got off to a pretty good start. And, and I remember uh, we were coming back from, I think it was a 10-game road trip, for crying out loud. And, and uh, my wife and two kids had drove from Prince Edward Island to St. John's, New Brunswick. And we played St. John's, New Brunswick, and the guys took the uh, bus back. And I drove back with, uh, with uh, our two daughters and my wife. We took the ferry over to PEI and, uh, you know, just had a day or two in, in, in St. John. And the next day, the Tuesday, they called me and Randy said, you, you know, you by yourself. And, and I said, yeah, I was. And he said, we'd like you to come up. And I really didn't to say because they'd lost the two games before 8 nothing and 7-2. Yashin was not, uh, had not signed. Um, Duchesne had got hurt. But Randy Sexton had given me a job when I didn't have a job because I'd left Kingston. Um, and I was, you know, I, I, I just was looking for a job. And, and we had played together briefly in Cornwall. And he said, we want you to come up. And it was it was going to be a difficult situation, but Randy Sexton, man, had done every, you know, given me every opportunity. And I said, Hey, I'm with you. And everybody looks at it as it was a failure. But when I look back at it, Mike, we had to put value back in the young guys and Bonk and Dave and Neckar and guys like that, you know, got their game turned around. And there was a lot of animosity between the fans and Randy, between the older guys and the young guys, between the young guys and the older guys. And we might not have won a lot of games, but we were in games. And when I got fired, they also brought in Damien Rhodes. And Damien Rhodes came in there and Jacques Martin did a wonderful job and played him and got his confidence. And they got Yashin back, Duchesne back, and they really turned it around. And then I remember Ray Shiro was in the office in Grand Rapids when I went to Grand Rapids and they beat Jersey in the last game of the year to finally make the playoffs. And, you know, Pierre Gauthier was good to me at the time. Randy Sexton was good to me. Pierre Maguire was good to me. 
but it was it was a bittersweet. There's no question it was a bittersweet moment um, in my life because it 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 was a failure. It was also necessary to get what we had to get done, and I was maybe at the right place at the wrong time. But it laid the groundwork for what they did down the road. So I'm sure you can look back on it and still have that pride associated with it. I look at your career and there's so many connections you make. And you always seem to have this positive spin on it, you know, where things may not have gone well, but I learned this and I improved here. And you end up getting jobs in Iowa, Peoria, Chicago. But there was some time in there that you went back to scouting. And was that something that you enjoyed as much as head coaching? Or did you always have that feeling that, I'm a coach, and this is what I need to do. You know, I, I, I've been very fortunate. I mean, I, I was in uh, Nashville again with Ray and David Poyle, and, and uh, my dad got sick with Alzheimer's. And, you know, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And I went home because I wanted to say goodbye to him while he was still had his faculties. But, I mean, I went to the SIJHL. It was probably, I mean, it was a good league, but it was probably the, it was a new league in junior. And I spent three years at home because I wanted to see what it was like, but I also wanted to, you know, spend some time with my dad. And then that team folded, Mike. And Timmy Bernhardt, I go back to Timmy Bernhardt in Cornwall, um, you know, mentioned me to Doug Armstrong and, uh, Doug called me up and I went and interviewed and I got the job. I mean, think of that, Mike. I'm in Fort Francis, Ontario. The team that I'm coaching folds. And the next thing you know, I'm flying in a private jet to Dallas to sign a contract with Doug Armstrong. And, you know, then Doug was released in the third year. And he, I mean, he's doing a great job and he, he, I mean, he's up for GM of the year. He's just a wonderful human being. And, and he's, he's, he saved me a couple of times. And, and, uh, I went there and we had 21 guys in three years, play over a hundred games in the national hockey league. And it was because we had good scouts in Dallas and Polly Gerard was the assistant coach. And I fell in love with Iowa. That's your home now. Yeah, or it's been your home for a long time, right? Where your, your family was largely yeah, raised. Yeah. yeah, and so you you know, so I had a year in my contract, and then I was very fortunate. Uh, Pierre, uh, the assistant GM, hired me to do player development with Colorado for a year, and then I was going to coach the junior team uh, there, the Buccaneers, and then I couldn't because of my immigration status. And uh, again, Ray Shiro comes and offers me a job with the help of Danny McKinnon. And I scouted for three years. But you know what? I, I, I just missed the camaraderie and the development side of it. And, you know, really wanted to get back into coaching. And I remember I left a message for Doug that said that, you know, I'm not asking you for a job, but if anything ever comes up, I'd still love to work with you. He called me. And, uh, went to Peoria where you and I met. We went to Chicago the next year. And then, uh, you know, it was time to, you know, sort of salvage a few things in my own personal life. And, uh, went and took the job with, uh, with uh, the Des Moines Buccaneers. So I enjoyed scouting. But I think in scouting, there's, you've, scouting that, that player development is, is, is important. And it's not who you draft, it's who you sign. But I really loved coaching more than scouting. And, uh, you know, that's, I just got back to it and figured, hey, you're not going to live forever. So you might as well do something that you're, that you love, not just that you like. Spending time with the Des Moines Buccaneers over the last four seasons, you got to work with kids that were 16 to 20 years old. And that's a big difference from pro hockey players. How different was it to one coach them and two, how much do you think it has changed in the way kids respond to coaching nowadays versus when you were younger or when I was younger? I just think that more and more people are involved in their lives and, you know, parents and, and then there's a lot of, 
you know, ex-NHLers that, that have kids. And I just think that it's so convoluted and everybody's in such a hurry and comparing themselves to other people. And, and it's the hardest league because that I found to coach in because there's not a great deal of trust. Um, and it's, it's, it's a year to year. There's no development. If you develop your kids really quickly, they take them into college right away, especially the, the, you know, the schools that maybe aren't as affluent as other schools. So they're taking in them in when they're not ready because they don't want another big school to come and grab them. Um, you know, you've got the threat of going to major junior. It's, it's, there's a lot of pitfalls within the USHL. Now I think it's a real good league. I really do, but it's not the development league of the CHL where you pretty much know that you're going to be there for three to four years and you dig in. It's not as if you've got one foot out the door um, thinking you're going to just be one and go to college. You know that unless you're going to the National Hockey League, you're going to be there for three years. And again, Mike, I think that the parents, um, they're the ones that are entitled. It's not the kids. They're the ones that think they're entitled just because uh, they are who they are that think their kids are going to be better than they are or going to going to move forward faster than they should. Like I saw it with my brother, like I've got hands on and we, I saw it with the three guys that we had in Kingston, Grattan Lindros and uh, Chad Kilger. They all played as underages in the national hockey league and all had excellent careers, but they would have had marvelous careers if they had a one more year to physically and mentally develop. And, you know, they were thrust into positions that people thought they were 22, 24, just because of their size and their skill set and everything else, but they weren't. And you can't rush maturity or physical or mental. And that's what happens too much in the USHL. Everybody's in a hurry to get where nowhere for the most part. Because the next step's either college or college, you know? I mean, there's a few guys that'll leave and go to play major junior or something. But, yeah, there is that next stepping stone. You, were you still making the travel from Des Moines to Fort Francis on occasion between, you know, at the start of the season or the end of the season? No, not when I was coaching. This gotcha. year I, I came here. But, like, the year we were in Peoria, my mom had uh, at ALS, and that's why I was going back to Fort Francis yeah. all the time. I mean, it had to be tough to have to do that travel while you were coaching, too. I mean, just to have that in the back of your mind as well. Well, you know what? Uh, it was a reprieve for both of us. She was excited, and I was excited, and it was uh, necessary. Yeah. You know, it was just it was wonderful to get away. And, and you guys, you know, I, we had Scotty there. Um, we had you guys there. That, uh, that, that We had a great group there. You know, and Mike, I mean, you were as big a part of this and, and just keeping everybody because we didn't have a great team, but we had a competitive team and we had solid guys and they did the best they could. But, you know, guys like yourself and and Ports and, 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 and Scotty, just, just, you know what, we had fun. We played hard. Whether we were going to make the playoffs or not, you guys carried the load and we finished what we started. And to me, that's what was important. And we got to ride around on the time machine with Bronco Brad driving us. You remember that thing? Oh my goodness me. That, that thing. I mean, you go in there was like a time capsule. You thought that, uh, Oh, it was like Star Trek for crying out loud. But Star <laughs> Trek was, Star Trek was a safer thing. We need more lithium crystals, Scotty. I can't get this going any faster. I mean, Bronco was a great guy. Yeah, that thing was uh, that thing was uh, like mystery meat. That was a mystery bus. Do you remember when that thing nearly lost the trailer driving down to Texas? And Bronco oh walks up goodness. to me and goes, "Brother, your blocker could have been in that fucking lake over there, man." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was the there was some good times on that bus. There was some good times on that bus, but man, it really was. It was a treat. So do you still go to your lake? Uh, are you at Red Lake in the spring? You know what? I'm at Rainy Lake right now, Mike. Does it take 18 miles by boat to get there? It's, it's, it's depending on where I leave from, it's 
18 miles or now I found a place closer at six miles, but it's two miles long by a mile wide. There's only six cabins on it. And I haven't seen a boat in five days and I don't expect to see a boat, but it is beautiful. There's, there's two things that I've loved. I've loved the cabin. I've loved coaching. Um, and then, Hey, those are the two things. I mean, excluding your friends and your family and your own right. kids for crying out loud. But those are the two things that, uh, that I've enjoyed the most. Hey, I got one last question here, and Randy Sexton wanted me to ask it, so I need to know whether this is true or not, because he tells the story of you falling asleep in the car between Des Moines and Fort Francis, and your kids painting your toenails. Is that really true? Oh, it was true, because you know what? We were at the draft, and Randy and I had gone out and maybe tipped a few. Um, maybe tipped a few too, Betty. And I got back to Des Moines and my kids picked me up and I said, we're going to Fort Francis. And I got in the car and I said, Hey, I got to sleep. And I had the back of a Toyota and I woke up and my toenails were painted pink and I could not get it off. Mike. Like I'm up on the Island and my kids are laughing and I thought they were going to put uh, eyeshadow on me, but man, it was a good night and it was a good summer with those kids up at the cabin, man. That's great. That's so funny. Randy had all these old stories that he wanted to bring up, like you fighting a guy named Glenn Cochran 13 times. And he just, he was really into this. He wanted to screw you pretty good, I think. <laughs> Glenn Cochran. When you talk about the American Hockey League, I fought Glenn Cochran 16 times, okay? So I'm scouting with Ronnie Payette, and we're up in uh, uh, we're up at Eden Prairie watching Bukestead and Gardner play against each other. And I look across the rink, and there's Glenn Cochran. And I go to Ronnie Payette, oh, my goodness me, I'm having nightmares. And he says, why? And he says, that's Glenn Cochran. He kicked the crap out of me 14 times. But I figured. I'm serious, Ronnie. I had to draw him twice. Like, I had to break even with him twice. And Ronnie goes, next thing I know, Ronnie's walking across the concourse, Mike, and here comes Glenn Cochran. And I don't, I, like, I almost started to run because I had the cold sweat because he was tough. And, he, and he's got no smile on him. And he comes up and he pokes me with the finger and he says, Davey, did you tell Ronnie Payette that you beat me twice? And I said, I never did. I said, I got it. I at least had to have two draws with you. Ronnie, you beat me up 14 times. I had to have two draws. And he looked around and he pondered it for a second. He says, you know what? I'll give you the two draws. But you know what, too, Davey? He says, you're one of the only guys that, you know, put me into the hospital a couple of times. And I felt pretty good about myself. I said, I must have hit him with a couple of good ones every now and then. He says, yeah, every time I fought you, I had to go get stitches in my head from hitting you so many times. <laughs> and we couldn't stop laughing. And he's one of the nicest guys. Because now when I see him, because we scouted against each other and he come into Des Moines, he's one of the nicest guys. And he's just a huge, like just... He's just a teddy bear of a guy, but man, he was one of the toughest guys that I ever, uh, I ever had the privilege of being beaten up by. But <laughs> isn't that uh, you know, crazy? Most of the guys yeah, isn't oh, that crazy that my, the guys you go to war with, five, ten, fifteen, however many years later, you see them somewhere out and you meet each other, and you're best friends right away after you tried to kick the living shit out of each other. Isn't that wild? You know what it is, and I have to say, for the most part, that that. that you know, you all, they talk about a code. I don't know if there's a code for crying out loud, but you had empathy for each other. You knew your job and you knew that you were going to do it. And you know what? Those guys are successful. I mean, Glenn Cochran is an unbelievable scout. Um, but you know that if he's in your organization, he's got your back. I don't know what it all comes down to, Mike, but there's a lot of things. But I just think that the biggest thing you can have is trust. You know, when you... When you trust somebody, you're going to do what's necessary. And I think that people have to be vulnerable to change. But the one thing that you want in, in, in a friend or, or, or anything is just trust. You know, if you could go back and give some insight into your overarching belief as a coach, what you've learned through the years, if there's a, any sort of advice you could give to people 
whether they're in the game, out of the game, parents, coaches, players, what's the essence of it? What's the most important part? It's a sport. You know, don't, you know, it, it, it's trial and tribulation for this too shall pass. Um, you can't get too high, too low, but just don't lose sight that it's just a game. It doesn't define you. It is the most important thing for an hour. It's the most important thing that you have in your life for an hour each day that you go to the rink if you're a player, but it's not the most important thing in your life. You're going to have family. You're going to have trial and tribulation with other jobs, with other people. And the lesson you can learn is the people that you admire the most are people that you can trust. Thanks for listening to Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. Please make sure that you like, comment, leave a rating, subscribe, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere that you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.